everyone. Welcome to episode 68 of the MTG Grindcast, the best podcast in the multiverse. <laughs> we've been okay. We've gotten some feedback. Maybe our maybe our focus in the intro is a little narrower than the the podcast itself. So we're going to be testing out new new slogans. So so definitely like hit me up on Twitter or Discord with your submissions for for what the podcast should be called because I you know I think it's going to be a little while before we find the perfect fit. I look. Um, I mean, I liked this one. The best. Best podcast in the multiverse. Sounds. Yeah, well, I mean, nice, our, nice ring to it. Our first one's a little narrow. This one's like real broad. <laughs> Central North Carolina or the multiverse? You everywhere. know, it's like about the same. Right. So we want to find that right balance. So if you've got you've got any ideas, definitely hit me up. Um, we are your hosts. I am still Chris Caster Apple. With me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. How's it going? Not bad. How was GP Atlanta? A ton of fun. Cool. It was it was really awesome. Uh, Atlanta GPs for me are always great because um, my teammates Zansayed and Catlight live really close to there, mm. so we're typically good to just kind of chill and hang out with with local people all the time, and it's it's always pretty good. I uh, I ended up playing Dredge this weekend. Mm-hmm. I played Storm. I was pretty happy with Storm to be honest. I thought it was really strong. Yeah, but. I was playing a little bit of dredge, like I played a dredge through a few leagues, kind of leading up to Atlanta, and was just kind of I had kind of like known from like a you know analytical standpoint or something that dredge was like really really good and, mm-hmm. and busted or whatever, but <laughs> actually experiencing that like playing the deck through a few leagues and just like completely crushing people with it, I was like, oh yeah, I think that dredge is actually you know yeah something I want to be doing despite the fact that people have a lot of hate for it just you know game ones are your deck is just better than everybody else's mm-hmm. like you're faster and you're more consistent it's it's pretty crazy so yeah that's that's what I ended up running pretty happy with the choice I ended up 10 four and one for one pro point so <laughs> yeah that draw doesn't do a lot for you. <laughs> yeah it's, it was pretty much the same as a loss um but yeah it was um yeah it was a good weekend I was, you know, I was pretty happy with my deck selection. Well, we'll definitely get like really into modern. We're mostly talking about modern today because we still got regionals coming up this coming week, and modern is mostly what people have been playing lately. So, right, that's what we'll be doing is, you know, focusing on like what to play at SCG regionals this weekend. Before we get started, want to thank our newest patrons, uh, Eben, Matt, Wesley, Stephen, and Cody. Thank you guys so much for your support. I have a document now that is an MS Word mailing label document that I've been putting addresses into. So the, the tokens are going out pretty soon. If you'd like to get some tokens of your own, come hang out in the Discord. You can find us at uh, patreon.com slash mtggrimecast. And uh, if you'd like to lend us some support, that would be awesome. But first, let's get started with a Keeper Mall. So we missed we missed doing this last week, so we want to make sure to get one this week. Uh, haven't quite kept up with your deck choice for this past tournament, <laughs> but here is a Storm Keeper Mall. Yeah. Uh, so this is game two on the draw against blue-white control, and we see this hand, which is Island, two Scalding Tarns, and a Spire Bluff Canal, and three pieces of the puzzle. So kind of a weird hand. No cantrips at all. No right. no mana creatures. Yeah. This is just the. But you you've boarded in this card. So. Yeah. Yeah. Three pieces of the puzzle and four lands. Yep. That's what we're looking at. Yep. So right. So in order to figure out whether or not this is a keeper mulligan, you really have to know the matchup that you're playing against mm-hmm. and know how that matchup plays out. So we're playing against blue white control. And against these control decks, especially post board, making your land drops is really really crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really want to get to a point where you have like six lands in play so that you can really, you know, cast a lot of spells just kind of like off your mana. You're not like leaning on your uh, rituals too much. 
I actually tend to board down on two rituals in this matchup just because I, I would much rather, like, you know, have the game go a little longer and build up to, you know, a bunch of just kind of like natural mana so that I can utilize that to fight through the counter spells that my opponent is presenting. Mm-hmm. So land drops in this matchup, really important. So the fact that we have four lands in our opening hand is actually, I think, a benefit in, okay. as opposed to a detriment to us because just like I know how this matchup plays out and I would I would, I would really prefer to just kind of have all of these lands so that I can enact my game plan of just like having some time where I can fight through stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also pieces goes really well with that plan. Pieces, you know, we have three two-for-ones in our hand kind of right off the bat. We can use them to find our combo pieces. It's pretty likely that we're going to be able to find uh, some number of empty the warrens with these three pieces. We run three empties in our deck and we're, we have the capacity to dig 15 cards. So it's pretty likely that we're going to be able to find that. Because that's also another part of kind of like the earlier game against blue-white control is that if like, at, you know, at some point up to turn like five or something, you can create some number of goblins to force your opponent to fight over something. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can just like make like six goblins or something, your opponent is going to have to answer that yeah. like relatively quick- quickly. And that typically means that they have to expend resources doing that by like tapping out for a sweeper or putting something on the board, you know, whatever they have in order to deal with those. Because they're either A, losing, or they're B, uh, <laughs> dealing with your goblins, right? right? So you want to time it so that when they do deal with your goblins, then you can, like, fight over stuff after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that requires a raw, like, pretty large number of cards. Is- exactly, right, for sure. So effectively what I'm getting to is that because I know my plan against blue-eye control and I know how the games play out post-board, mm-hmm. This hand fits into that really well. Mm-hmm. It has the land drops, and it has the ways that I can find specifically what I'm looking for. Okay. So this hand has everything I need, and it looks a little weird, but like the whole concept of knowing how the games play out post-board and like knowing the particular matchup is such an excellent tool for figuring out whether or not you want to keep a hand like this. Gotcha. So yeah, so I thought this was definitely an interesting thing to talk about, just because it's a perfect example of like a weird wonky hand that you never keep in like in a the dark. But you know we have it's we're post board here, so it's not like that's true. But it's yeah, it's definitely a wonky hand that you never keep otherwise. But in this particular matchup, I'm I'm in. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Like you know, Storm doesn't actually do anything on the like first couple of turns of the game. You're casting cantrips to sculpt your hand. Yeah, but you know, like if this hand were like land land. Serum Visions, Sleight of Hand, Pieces of the Puzzle, Pieces of the Puzzle, Pieces of the Puzzle. Like, yeah. those cantrips, we would hope that we return... Like, we'd keep that hand because yeah. it looks like a magic hand with, right. with, like, a kind of a curve and stuff. But those cantrips are tasked with finding lands. Right, so exactly. So hand is actually <laughs> yeah. just a lot better than, right. like, two lands, some cantrips. We're already guaranteed our four, first four land drops, which is really good. And and the, the, the fear of flooding out is mitigated by the fact that we have three... You know, two for ones that are guaranteed to find us two spells, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Definitely a kind of a, a cool hand that really highlights that, like, you know, concept of, of mulliganing. Yeah, yeah. And so th- that makes a lot of sense. Like, weird hand, but you're actually pretty excited to get this. Right, yeah, into. yeah. If I, yeah, if I'm, like, up a game post-board against blue Eyed, I'm, like, locked. Snap it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, makes so. sense. So, yeah. Cool. Well, so, let's move on to our main topic for today, which is pretty much just modern... We want to look back at GP Atlanta and what happened there and use that and recent other tournaments as a guidepost for like what to play at SCG Regional this weekend. Mm-hmm. I, I unfortunately missed GP Atlanta, so I, I was not there to see it. I, I didn't even get to see coverage because I had other stuff going on this yeah. weekend, ran a race with some friends. 
Um, but that's a discussion for my other podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I saw some photos. Congratulations, by was, the way. It was a good race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a fun weekend. But I did, you know, miss out on some, you know, hardcore modern play in advance of playing regionals. So yeah. really want to dig down and, and figure out what's going on. Um, looked through a bunch of deck lists, read what people were saying about the tournament and that sort of thing. What I am really interested, and I'm glad that you played Dredge this weekend, because I think one of the storylines here is trying to figure out, like, how much graveyard hate are people bringing to the table right now? And just from looking at the the raw results from GP Atlanta, you know, there are graveyard-heavy decks all over the place in yeah. the top eight and the top 32. You know, mm-hmm. in the top eight, we've got Hollow One and Bridgevine. And, you know, Ironworks combo really does count as a graveyard deck. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Hardened Scales, to like, is vulnerable to Rest in Peace mm-hmm. and then Leyline of the Void, if but not to other, you know, not to Grafdigger's Cage and that sort of nonsense. Right. So not not a big surprise that Bant Spirits won this time. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of Stony Silences and Rest in Peace yeah, on the yeah. sideboard. Absolutely. One of the things that Zan told me was that he expected dredge to be a better choice for a grand prix environment than it would be for a star city games environment for example um and he he said that because he believes that people generally at grand prix want to tune their decks to as many things as possible but because the SCGs happen so much more frequently people are like more willing to pull the trigger on like all right for this tournament i know that i want like three rest in peace and Mm -hmm. you know and more dredge stuff but at a grand prix you're more like okay i'll have my rest in pieces but i also want to be prepared for a wider field okay so i think that 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 kind of idea and that like mentality that we think a lot of people bring to grand prix really makes it much better choice to pull the trigger on a graveyard deck at a grand prix because people's deck lists are going to be less like specifically tuned for what they expect Mm -hmm. on average so yeah, I'm I'm not really surprised to see you know the graveyard decks are still going to be able to like fight through and and they definitely had some good results there, and but the ones that did well I think are particularly like KCI for example I think is particularly resilient to graveyard right. hate just because it has you know so many ways of finding the answers to it mm-hmm. right and and the one shot graveyard hate against KCI is not as you know it, it's hard to get somebody with relic exactly that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. thing right for sure yeah but Bridgevine. And Hollow One are definitely vulnerable. And I know, I know, Yuzo went, you know, fourteen and zero. Right. Hollow <laughs> yeah. One in the Swiss. Well, so. Hollow One is this interesting deck where I think, I mean, you you played way more Hollow One than I have, mm. but is it true that you're kind of like dorky, like casting your spells cards kind of work out a surprisingly high number of time against graveyard hate, like uh, ley lines and stuff? A, a a pretty medium amount of the time. Okay. Like I've I've definitely. You know, people have talked about, like, hey, you know, this is the graveyard deck that can, like, win Leyline Mirrors. Mm-hmm. And that is true sometimes because, yep. yeah, you can play Hollow... Like, your Hollow Ones are exactly as good, although you give away a lot of resources by casting the yeah. the, fatal, the, the Faithless Looting in the first place. Um, and Flamework Phoenix, if you're both crippled, is a totally fine card that can start clocking them. And, and, and same with Flameblade Adept. Mm-hmm. But... It can get just pretty awkward with the Delve guys, especially yeah. just being completely dead when they're really, you know, in in game ones, you are mulliganing towards your big threats. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. if your hand doesn't represent a fast hollow one or a fast Gurmag Angler, or Tassiger, if, if that's what you're on, sure. like, that hand is a mulligan on seven, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, unless you have, a, you know, unless you're digging really deep and have a really good chance, like, guarantee that if there is one of those in your top five cards, then you will have it in play on turn two, sure. you know, that sort of hand. But 
like those are the preeminent threats of the deck and against graveyard hate it becomes very very difficult to resolve you know half of your preeminent threats and then it's very matchup dependent there are matchups that require you to be able to keep bringing back blood gasts or flame wake phoenixes yeah and yeah, yeah when you're not able to do that you know in some matchups that's not that important in some matchups like you know tron's relics are not that powerful against the deck yeah but out of a more removal heavy controlling deck you know it makes a, a much bigger difference if they have graveyard hate so yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's really a weird like it's really matchup dependent how good graveyard hate is against the deck and yeah like it can if both players have a ley line in play it is better at making threats than dredge is but dredge is a lot better at removing ley lines mm-hmm. than hollow one is <laughs> yeah, so right <laughs> I, I think that 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 concept is a little bit overstated sure um, okay so i i do not enjoy playing against graveyard hate with hollow one mm-hmm. and i have had a lot of success against hollow one with graveyard hate um out of you know admittedly out of living end in particular which just overall like its cards line up quite well uh, yeah, yeah, yeah it wins the both players have leyline fights pretty handily <laughs> right and uh it the, the fact that you just have a bunch of wrath of gods in your deck against the all creature deck um transforms that matchup you know, helps a, a lot yeah helps a lot but um yeah like deck definitely can win against certain types of graveyard hate and especially out of certain types of decks uh, if you get out ahead you can get out ahead of the rest in peace depending on what you're doing but you know i, I think it is more vulnerable to the hate than some people give it credit for especially because the hate has trended towards ley lines which um just really mess the deck up pretty badly right so yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess uh, the concept I had in my in my mind is like whenever people are like aggressively mulliganing towards ley lines, mm-hmm. then on average their hands are just much worse, and yes. that kind of like cripple fight you can win most of the time. Yeah, I mean that that is absolutely true. But you know, if it's a Jun deck and they keep like a ley line and an assassin's trophy, like you're just never going to beat Jun that has those two cards in their opening hand. So, right. Um, that I'm that's that's my feeling. Unless, <laughs> unless, unless their hand is just complete garbage. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah, but yeah. So I mean, ultimately, the takeaway here, I think, is like graveyards. The graveyard is not an off limits zone mm-hmm. right now. And, yeah. and even if you know GPs are a little more open in the the like concentration of hate that you play against, then the uh, a Star City event might be a little more. You know, people are targeting something in particular, like. Graveyard decks did just fine at this. There are plenty of dredge decks um, that people were winning with and doing fine with. Um, and so it's not, to me, it does not seem like an off-limits zone. Yeah. One thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, I'm, I'm leaning towards Tron again for this coming weekend. It was a little scary to see Amulet do so well. And then, oh no, are people going to start playing Blood Moons or playing lots of Damping Spheres, even though Damping Sphere may not actually <laughs> beat Amulet at all. Right. Uh, and so, like, that's that's one thing that I want to kind of figure out here is how big of a risk or how good of an idea is it to play just in general a big mana deck after this weekend? It was definitely very heavily represented in Atlanta. I don't I don't know if it's kind of, like, going to be the boogeyman at, at any point soon, just because I think that that, that status is going to be held by Dredge for a while. Mm-hmm. So I think that people are going to be definitely more scared about making sure that they have enough rest or yeah like rest in pieces and ley lines and instead of like the blood moon effects yeah so in 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 that aspect it, it does seem like a pretty good time to be a big mana deck yeah 
Um, so what are you thinking of, of bringing, just to sort of kick things off, what are you thinking of bringing to regionals? For, for regionals, I think I have a couple of options. I could easily run back Dredge. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that would be a bad choice. But again, I think that for regionals, I think that there's probably going to be a higher uptick of graveyard hate. Okay. The other options I was kind of kicking around was going back to Storm or just kind of playing humans again. Mm-hmm. I think it, it wouldn't be a terrible time to, to, to bring back humans and make sure that, you know, it's tuned towards what I expect to see on the weekend. And plus, I just haven't played it in forever. And, uh, you know, humans is my humans is my baby. So I <laughs> was winning regionals the last time you played it in a paper turn. I guess you played it a couple of times after that. But, um, but I, I, know I did play it at an open okay. a couple of times since then. I know you did win regionals with humans once before, so, you know. Yeah, that was part of my streak of back-to-back-to-back to back to back I won an open, and then <laughs> regionals, and then an IQ. <laughs> People have caught up a little bit since then. Right, yeah, but that was when nobody was preparing for humans at all, and, and I could still just kind of run rampant on <laughs> on people's lack of knowledge. But, you know, those days are over. You gotta you gotta work for your wins now with humans these days. Yeah. But, you know, I, I I was kind of entertaining the idea of just kind of going back to that as something that, you know, Humans is cl- clearly a very powerful deck. Mm-hmm. I think that it's definitely still in contention for, you know, best deck in modern right now, probably competing with Dredge as like a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Regionals is just going to be a really good tournament to be able to, just the whole concept of like Humans being better against a slightly weaker field, I think is going to be a, a, a big benefit for playing humans at, at, at in a regionals environment where I'm, you know, I can just kind of lean on the power level of the deck a lot to, mm-hmm. to do the work for me. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, that is a real part of it, is a lot of people will come out and play regionals that don't get out and play a lot of competitive tournaments. Um, and so I think humans lends to leveraging, like, counting skills and combat math skills a little right. bit that, that yeah. may give you an advantage there that... Mm-hmm you know, you might not have in late rounds of an open or a GP or something. Yeah. And you could take that concept, like, to the extreme and play something like Jeskai Control, mm-hmm. where I think Jeskai Control is much better in, in, like, softer environments just because you have a lot more opportunity to play circles around people. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I think that Humans also has some of those elements as well of just, like, you know, the combat math and not expecting how much damage there could be or something like that. So Right, right. Yeah, you might regain some of those advantages from the early days of humans by, you know, playing against some people who have not played against right. humans piloted at 100% as often. And even just, like, ignoring that factor and, and being, like, people just aren't as prepared right now for humans mm-hmm. as they were, uh, like, a month or two ago. Sure. A month or two ago, it was all about humans. People yeah, were everybody's like, diversifying you know, the room. <laughs> right, yeah. People were, you know, trying to figure out what weird <laughs> cards to put in their deck that they'll never name with Meddling Mage or whatever. But I think that those days are pretty over at, at this point. So... I like humans a lot in, in that in that regard. Yeah, I, I mean, I will never say that humans is a bad choice for one of these tournaments. Interesting what you say about Jeskai Control. Like, I, that kind of... I don't know, like, I've wanted to talk about this a, a little bit, and this might not be the best opportunity to go really deep into it, because I haven't fully cultivated this theory <laughs> Your of thoughts magic. on it? Sure. Um, but, so this is a little broader than just Jeskai Control. But, yep. um, the like, the more I play, the more I've found that playing against control is fundamentally, to me at least, far more difficult than playing with the control deck. Absolutely. It's just so much easier to make mistakes or at least, like, cost yourself percentage points against mm-hmm. the control deck. 
I, I, and I think it might just be like the control deck just has more information about how the game is going to progress over the next several turns than the, right. the non-control deck does. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of why I believe that that kind of control deck is better in a software environment is mm-hmm. because people aren't going to know exactly, they're not exactly going to know what to do against the control deck to maximize their equity. Yep. And yeah, I mean, so there are kind of like two m- main skills, I guess, of magic that I've been thinking about recently, and one of which is the um, like technical in-game turn-by-turn sequencing decisions <laughs> that you make. And those are the like skills that newer players are still cultivating. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I say newer in that context, I still mean like I mean like you know, you could be playing for a year, but in this instance, I'm still going to consider you a pretty new player. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you're learning how to play magic, especially like getting into the competitive scene and everything, you're learning how to c- cultivate these like your your technical play. You're like turn by turn, like what's the right thing to do here. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes a lot of people much longer to kind of break through into the next like phase of getting good at magic, which is approaching things from a broader standpoint and understanding your plans, um, understanding how the game is going to play out several turns in advance mm-hmm. and what the game state is going to look like four turns from now mm-hmm. because of what I expect, you know, how I expect our resources to trade. Yeah, And that's like second phase of learning how to be good at magic is what's important when you play against control Mm -hmm. because you can like play each turn technically correct in quotes just because like you're maximizing your equity like turn by turn against control Mm -hmm. and still get crushed because (laughs) the control player is thinking several turns down the line and if you're not thinking about those things then uh you know each of your turns might like look individually pretty good but then the control player's like yeah he's he just like jammed something into my counter spells every turn and it never worked out you know <laughs> you have to be able to to kind of like envision like how your resources are going to trade over the course of a long period of time and that's something that's pretty difficult and takes a lot of experience to know how to do mm-hmm. so that's kind of like generally what i'm talking about when i'm when i say control is better in the software environments yeah yeah well and and i mean just to like solidify that with a kind of concrete example from these sorts of control decks like you have to simultaneously be thinking about what if they have a sweeper here and Mm -hmm. also what if they have a removal spell and a snapcaster mage to double up on that removal spell right you have to play like fundamentally differently against those sorts of things um and because the control player has all the information you know they know how that's going to happen they they can make plays that like subtly encourage you to play more guys into a sweeper like you know they can play their gideon or something like that and and even though it's probably going to die just to force more guys onto the board like they have the information about what that responsive spell is going to be and so they're they're much more capable of taking advantage of it that said And, you know, we are talking about, like, what to pick for regionals. And this GP in particular is very different from regionals because this is a pre-PT GP. Yeah. So lots of, uh, you know, extremely skilled pros. You know, this this top eight had one American in it because everybody's here for the PT and they all know how to play Magic. So, you know, this idea of, uh, hey, we're going to play a control deck because it's a softer field obviously wouldn't have held up in this gp and absolutely did not hold up in this right. gp there are no reactive decks yeah up here you know there's there's what there's like one 
you know, blue red Pyromancer Ascension deck in the top 32, but that's got Pyromancer Ascension, so it's got a very assertive game plan. Once you have your Pyromancer Ascension going, you're not going to lose to anything. <laughs> right. Um, there's, you know, I don't, I don't see any Jeskai. I don't see any Jund. Like this is just all decks with a pretty linear plan that are trying to assert their will onto the game. And in general, man, I think we are just in a place where that's. Maybe it's a little different in a tournament that's not as high-level competitive as this, yeah. but I think that analysis can only take you so far, and at some point you just have to say, this is modern, I gotta have a deck that has an assertive plan. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I, I just, you know, I, I've said before, like, I have not found a, a removal-heavy deck or counterspell-heavy deck in modern that I actually want to play in a tournament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you there, for sure. It's, it's definitely very tough, and... You know, it's tough to be reactive in a format as punishing as modern. Yeah. There's just too many things to respond to. Right. Like... Yeah, too many angles. I Yeah, for sure. You just want to be able to say, like, okay, I hope that my thing that I'm doing on turn three or four is bigger than the thing that you're doing on turn three or four. Or I, I don't know. It's just, like, you know, this is this is one of the reasons why I have... Testing for modern has been a little bit of a chore for me lately. It's It's just been a little... Mostly because I just want to play standard or I want to draft. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I did fire up two standard leagues last night. Yeah, but we can talk about that a little bit. <laughs> no, I totally get it because you know, especially in, when you're in a in a spot where you you, you feel like you, the the deck you know best in in modern isn't like in a very good position, so you like want to look for other things. Mm-hmm. But like finding that other thing, whatever it is, also still needs to like fit you pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know. So finding that's tough if it's, you know, like, not not completely readily available. Yeah. Well, and, and we've talked about, like, you know, how maybe a good strategy for people approaching modern is to, like, you know, take a deck from each point on the modern wheel and have that, you know, have your, like, yeah, decks yeah, yeah. that you can bring to the tournament. And I'm, I was wondering, after, like, looking at this stuff, I'm wondering if maybe we want to reconceptualize the modern wheel a little bit. <laughs> so so yeah. let, me, let me give you my, like, thesis here, and you tell me, like, how crazy this is. Okay, I'm like, ready. It, it's not totally different from what we've been talking about. You know, we talked about the modern wheel as, you know, we have, what, combo decks, big mana decks, creature decks that are disruptive. Mm-hmm. Um I kind of want to organize more by the hate that the deck is vulnerable to. Okay. Because to me, that seems like the reason to pick a deck most of the time in modern right. is they're skimping on the card that beats me. Right. Because modern is just not a game of trading resources now. Um, it's not. It, it's so rarely like you know you you bash your cards into each other you put you hit guys with removal spells i mean sometimes you know jading top aided you know open with jund but sometimes you're playing jund and it is a trade of resources but but. (laughs) a huge percentage of the games are here's my plan oh no they drew this really powerful hate card i didn't draw my plan for dealing with the hate card and now i've lost right so that's why i think that maybe modern is best organized as hey like these are the decks with this type of plan and they're vulnerable to this type of hate card yeah so We've got your graveyard decks. Yep. And there's overlap. There's overlap, you know, with all of these, but graveyard decks, like, these are the decks where if they start with a ley line, you're in trouble. So right. Dredge, Hollow One, Living End, Bridgevine, whatever. Creature decks, humans, spirits, you know, that's mm-hmm. mostly what's in that category these days. And, and those are immune to specifically, like, sweeper effects and spot removal. Yeah, vulnerable to, to sweeper effects and spot removal, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but immune to 
the very targeted hate card. You know, we're not worried about somebody boarding in like, oh no, they've got three lightning bolts in their sideboard, and if they draw one of them, I can't win. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. At least it's a little more <laughs> resilient than that. But, right. But so, that, so yeah, we've got graveyard decks, creature decks, artifact decks. So anything with Mox Opal in it, artifact deck, vulnerable to usually Stony Silence, although we've got a deck we're going to talk about a little later. <laughs> it's not very vulnerable to Stony Silence, but certainly to Ancient Grudges and Shattering Sprees and those sorts of things. Yeah. And then big mana decks, just any deck that really hates to see a Blood Moon, not just because it hurts its mana, but because it really dominates its game plan. Dredge, Valakut, Amulet. And I think, like, to me, I kind of want to... And then I guess you've got... I I put down spell decks, um, and so to me, like, Storm is, like, the main example of this. Because, you know, we, we we have been saying, like, we don't really count Storm as a graveyard deck um, because it is so able to craft its game plan about around not using its its graveyard. You know, that's kind of a nebulous definition. Probably need to work on this this wheel a little bit more. Um, the hate that works against Storm is a little bit confusing what actually does and what people think works and what doesn't work. But so to me, like, this kind of sets out a clear idea of people don't change their modern decks all that much. And the the composition of the field, even when we think like, okay, it's dredge weekend, like there probably weren't that many more dredge decks than were in any random modern tournament. Right. You know, de- maybe d- twice as many, but then it shoots from like, you know, 4% to 8% of the field or something yeah. like that. So that doesn't mean that the field changes drastically from weekend to weekend. But what does change are the slots that the way people are spending their sideboard slots. Yeah. And I think it's really important. You know, if you're picking up an artifact deck, you are saying, I don't think people are going to be spending their couple of flex sideboard slots on stony silences this weekend. Right. If you're picking up a a graveyard deck, you're saying, I don't think that they're going to be spending them on whichever of the graveyard hate pieces is the one that beats you. And I, I just, I think this might be a valuable way to start looking at at Modern. And honestly, like, yes, some matchups are different, but I don't think that the decision you're making when you pick up, you know, Hollow One versus Dredge or Tron versus Valakut, I don't think that the, the decision you're making when you pick one of those decks from the category versus another is actually that big of a decision. You're, you're really, like, opening yourself up to similar things and overall like adjusting your matchups versus the field in similar ways yeah that makes a lot of sense for sure and i like thinking about it that way because it it kind of like cuts straight to the reason why you would want to pick certain decks over the other decks Mm -hmm. is because of what you're talking about with like you know what people are tuning their sideboards towards Mm -hmm. so i mean you know we can we can even use that right now based on what we think the modern metagame looks like yeah so which of those categories do you think people are not preparing for the most right now well so i would want to say looks like the graveyard hate dropped off Mm -hmm. but i do think that on a more local level and in a smaller tournament like regionals yeah i would expect for people who especially you know people who just don't want to lose to dredge now that it's really powerful and have creeping chills i think that's going to be a real thing and so i would expect for at regionals there to be more graveyard hate yeah I, i think you know, after looking at these Atlanta results, you know, part of me was like, can I just play a graveyard deck this weekend? Is that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you know, whichever graveyard deck I might end up choosing, who knows? Um, but I, I do think that it will be a tougher field at regionals for, for a graveyard deck. 
I don't think people are going to be as quick, even though, yeah, Amulet was in the finals of the Open. Mm-hmm. That seems like a data point that a lot of people might shake off a little bit. Sure. You know, there it's are... just not, Amulet just like is never going to be a popular enough deck for people to be like, oh no, there's going to be a ton of Amulet. That's just never going to be true. Right. It's, you know, it takes such a specialized player to be able to pilot that deck well. So yeah, definitely. And I mean, like the kind of hate that actually works against big mana decks, uh, a lot of times to me, I, I think is not the hate that people tend to lean into as hard. You know, Jun's plan of Assassin's Trophy and Surgical Extractions, I think is is great. And especially yeah. if they, you know, go all out and have a couple of Fulminator Mages in the sideboard. That's the kind of thing that if you're playing Boros Garrison, if you're playing Urza's Tower, uh, like that's a problem. Stuff like Damping Sphere, stuff like even Blood Moon, the big mana decks have been dealing with this for a long time and have right. real plans for getting through that. And so if people are upping their you know access to damping spheres in their sideboard like i'm bringing in all these nature's claims anyways in almost every matchup yes if there are more damping spheres around that hurts my percentages but number one i don't think based on the results we've been seeing that people are going to be all gung-ho on that sort of effect and also um you know i'm i'm prepared to fight through it so my feeling right now is i'm pretty happy being in that big mana section of the wheel yeah i mean that definitely makes sense i think that Another factor that we can look at is that we we saw in the Grand Prix top eight that there were no there's a very low amount of reactive decks, mm-hmm. which I think that gives a deck like spirits and humans and those like you know just like the creature decks uh, an edge as well. Very true. Because if you know if we're not seeing any of those, if we're not you know if we're not seeing any Jeskai control or just like dedicated control decks, then the all of a sudden those. Creature decks become pretty, you know, reasonable as well. True. So, so I mean, I think that those two kind of like categories might be the the better places to look for regionals: mm-hmm. creature decks and big mana decks. Yeah, I, I I think so. I think we may see more reactive decks at a tournament like regionals. Yeah, they're, I, I agree. John fans, they're just guy fans, right? But and, and it, it is interesting. Like I've heard people talking about how longer you know, like two-day tournaments, stuff mm-hmm. like like GPs and Opens, uh, you kind of get two stages of the metagame. The The winner's metagame is quite different from the, like, opening rounds metagame. And so stuff like taking Infect as the most focused linear deck you can possibly play because it beats up on most of the other linear decks right. makes a lot of sense at a tournament like a GP or an Open where you're, you're, you're kind of saying, like, okay, if I can squeeze through the first few rounds of this, not play against too many, like, Lightning Bolt Snapcaster decks, um, and then beat up on the Ironworks decks and whatever I expect to, people to actually be winning with, yeah, that doesn't happen so much at a, a one-day tournament like Regionals, so... I don't really know how to incorporate that into my deck choice philosophy yet, but it's something to at least be thinking about, I guess, and, and processing somehow. Yeah, for sure. I always, I'm, you know, I'm always down to think about stuff like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. Other interesting stuff, uh, Arclight Phoenix, you know, starting to find footholds in the format more as a card than as a deck, necessarily. I Yeah, and I saw... I saw some people playing it in Mardu Pyromancer. Yeah. Just like as like another threat. And that seemed, you know, honestly pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. You just like put it in a deck with faceless lootings and, and discard spells. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you have just like on turn three, you can cast three one mana spells and 
you know, that can do it. And you know, maybe it's like a lightning bolt and, the, and an Inquisition and a Faithless Looting. But. I think there's usually a Metamorphose in there. But. Oh, true. That's that's the other card that really helps as well. Because yeah. then, you know, then it only requires you to have two one-mana spells right. if you have one of your Metamorphoses. And that's pretty simple to do, honestly. It makes honestly. you a little better at, at casting Bedlam Reveler. I mean, I, I still... I still do not want to play Mardu Pyromancer, but sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah. having this this plan, like it is kind of cute. Like I think Pyromancer really did want just a couple more ways of making Faithless Looting like like even on card disadvantage. Yeah, um, and discarding a Phoenix feels really good. Pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> free creatures. So yeah, I mean, I I do I do like seeing that people are recognizing that that card just kind of like you know you don't need to try as hard as people think. To, to turn it on i think is the idea yeah it was even in a hollow one deck as well maybe mm-hmm. in the i saw a list maybe it was from the the modern challenge maybe not from the gp but a lot of these faithless looting decks it looks like you can just sort of fit it in and and make it work so. yeah i mean i played against one it was a mono red deck and i've always kind of laughed at the mono red mm-hmm. modern phoenix deck yeah. because the the iterations that exist as it currently stands are pretty bad yeah but i was so i was playing against it on magic online and i was like oh this guy he you know he's trying out this phoenix deck i wonder how it's gonna go for him um but then he cast a burning inquiry and played two hollow ones and i was like oh genius yeah you know why why weren't they doing this before and he was right. still mono red you know but he just like had more elements to the deck that like made it fundamentally more powerful in the fact that he had the hollow ones in there so yeah it was probably more along the lines of like a a hollow one deck than it was like just like a pure mm-hmm. spells or whatever he was still playing fiery temper right so let's get that out of there first of all <laughs> um fiery temper is not playable even in these really these okay decks. hot take yeah yeah all people right. are people are like trying to like make their faithless lootings a little better so they're like wedging in this three mana burn spell that everyone's like once in a blue moon is gonna cost you one mana but just just don't play the card <laughs> i mean i like Clearly, I mean, I think the deck building intent behind it is on your Phoenix Resurrection turn, you Faithless Looting, Fiery Temper. But it could just but be it, any other right, one minute. It really spell. could be anything at that yeah. point. And you're not really concerned about, like, saving the card off the Faithless Looting. And mm-hmm. that, if you're really all in, you know, if you're playing Hollow Ones, like, Hollow Ones spews cards to get those free creatures out right. and end the game as quickly as possible. But it does it in like a powerful and consistent manner. Right. And, and, and um, what I'm saying is like buying the card back forcefully by including a Madness card in your Faithless Looting deck. Yeah. Like yeah I can yeah. see how that wouldn't mesh up with, with right. the power that the, with what the deck is trying to do. Yeah. I think the difference is that uh, cards like Flame Lake Phoenix, the Delve cards, Hollow One, mm. Blood Ghast, these are, these are all like proven powerful modern cards, I think at this point. Yeah. Fire Timber is not a proven powerful card. <laughs> it's a bolt sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if if you're out there and you're brewing around with your with your Arclight Phoenix deck, um, great. I'm I'm happy because I I do think that there is a busted Arclight Phoenix deck that people haven't discovered yet in modern. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a build out there because I think that the card is just very powerful. You know, like prize amalgam levels of powerful. Sure. But people haven't figured it out yet, and I think that part of that is due to the fact that they're stuck on on. Trying to play too many bad cards to make this card good. Sure. Interesting. Well, we will see. I mean, Fiery Temper has been pretty omnipresent in these It's in all decks. the lists. Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's in, like, literally all the red lists. And I think even I played against a guy in the last round of the Grand Prix who was on just, like, mono-red Steamkin mm-hmm. 
and he had a fiery temper in his deck, and I was like, all right. <laughs> I mean, for the for the mono red versions, and this is why I, I would much rather be on like a thing in the ice version or yeah, something like yeah, that, yeah. or, or a, a, a you know hollow one shell or something. For the mono mm-hmm. red re- decks that are not doing a hollow one thing, you are reaching for playables at some point. Because we don't have any serum visions, we don't have ops, yeah. we don't have anything like Which that. Which is part of why I've never liked the Hollow One. Right. Or, sorry, I've never liked the Mono Red versions. Yeah, yeah. That's why. That's why the Hollow One type of deck is much more interesting to yeah. me. Is we're we're doing another powerful thing, and I I do not really want to be in the spot where I'm like burning inquirying to like try to craft my hand for a later like three spell turn. Ditch those phoenixes. That sounds. <laughs> that just. <laughs> Yeah, like that is just such a finger cross situation. Like not yeah. only ditch those phoenixes, but like keep ditch phoenixes, keep spells so we can do this as soon as possible. That sounds right. like real, real tough. To be fair though, that's what people were saying about Hollow One when it was yeah. first being tuned. Yeah. Um people were like burning inquiry, and now people are like, Oh god, my opponent has a burning inquiry. I'm so dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I yeah, and I don't know if like if it is too hard to keep a combination of cards, you know, because Burning Inquiry, you just want to keep some number of Gurmag Anglers, Tassigers, Hollow Ones. Mm-hmm. That's really all you cared about with that. Even if it's just like one, but you can play it that turn, that's usually great. With like, I need to cast three spells after doing this, or like two more spells if I'm casting this on my Phoenix turn. No, for sure. Like, yeah, it can you, be you, tough. Phoenix definitely requires a little more sculpting yeah. uh, and card selection. Uh, than like Bloodcast does, right. <laughs> you know, so so I, I definitely see that, and for sure, and I, I you know I'm not pretending to have all the answers here. I know no. I know that you know, I haven't, haven't played this out. deck though. I'm just, so, so like I'm just saying for I'm sure. uncomfortable with the idea, but <laughs> no, I, I get it. It Absolutely. can certainly work. <laughs> Absolutely for sure. But yeah, I mean you know keep an eye on the Phoenix card. I think that it, you know once people figure something out with it. I mean, the fact that it's just going into shells that are not 100% constructed to Phoenix as quickly as possible, like, means that the card is powerful. Yeah. So, it's it's important. Yep. So, modern challenge, there's a very tilting living end list. Oh, no. That, that five and one. What makes it tilting? Well, so this is by Jundillion, or Jundilion, I don't really know how you pronounce it. And, and, like, he has a special place in my heart because he... I think only plays Living End and, like, uh, <laughs> is always in these modern challenge results and stuff. Nice. But, and he experiments a lot, which is also cool. Yeah. But this is a Bloodbraid Elf version of the deck. So it has no Beast Withins in it. So you would think that it would be a version that's, like, trying to turn Bloodbraid Elf into a Cascade card for Living End. But the range on what your Bloodbraid Elves can do in this deck is hilariously <laughs> massive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair. <laughs> I, it's just frightening to me. I don't know. Yeah, and and you know maybe he was just trying it out. But uh, for those of you, so how many how many blood raiders was he running? Four blood raid elves, just in living end, just in living end. And I've I've had people, you know, when when blood raid elf got unbanned, I had multiple people like mention like you can run blood raid elf in living end. I was like, oh no, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> so. I mean, what can it hit, though? So the best hits, I guess, are the... Your only good hits, really, are Full Mater Mages or something that cascades into Living End. Okay. Or Living End itself. And right. to be fair, like, your odds of hitting Living End are relatively high. You know, cut a couple of the Cascaders, but so you got six Cascaders and two Living End. So eight of your hits are Living End. Mm-hmm. But four of your hits are Full Mater Mage, and four of your hits are Tutus. 
you only have a 50% oh, because you're running Simeon Spirit Guides. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Simeon Spirit Guides and Fairy Macabs. If so. if you're and Fairy Macabs. Okay. Yeah. If you're if you're all of your threes were like uh Fulminator Mages and Beast Within or something like that, then right. I think I'd be down because then either you're casting your living end in, in some way mm-hmm. um or you are Right, uh, killing you a know, land blowing up a land, or you know, per, you know, doing that game plan. And right. honestly, I think that living end, out of living end, blowing up their lands is just one of the more powerful angles you can have on the game. It is. So if it was just like just those two options, then I'm totally in. Right. But it, yeah, if 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 you're also like half of the time gonna hit a yeah an a, unplayable two two or something of the time right. you're hitting a two. Okay, sure. It's not horrendous, but it also means that you're cutting down on your simian spirit guides, which I think is just not. You've Not always great. been a pretty big fan of running as many of those as you can, right? Just four Simeon Spirit guys, yeah, and yeah. you know, you sometimes you cut them in the grindy matchups. Sure, the, like that's the philosophy that has always worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and cutting them just makes the deck way less powerful. I, I do have to give him credit. A lot of my like sideboard, a lot of the cards that go in and out of my sideboard have come from ideas from his lists. So you know, well, good. Definitely has worked on Living End and done a lot of good stuff. Yeah, this list I cannot get behind. How did he do in the Modern Challenge? This was a five and one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, six round tournament is not the most uh, telling yeah. thing. It's, it's a modern challenge. Yeah. Sometimes they're won by Kragenwick Cremator. Sometimes they're won by Kragenwick Cremator. Sorry, I had to pause because I had to pick up the card from the, from the table know, that I we're currently running I see on. it sealed. Did you buy yourself some Kragenwick Cremators? Um, Jeremy did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Before or after the spike? Oh, I, I had no idea that the like card even spiked. expensive now, because they're from Shadowmoor, so none of that set exists. Right, right, for sure. So, you know, that's modern. That's what we're thinking about for this weekend. Um, mm. I, I think Big Man is in a good place, and I agree that creature decks are also in a good spot. Um, one thing that I do want to mention... So, number one, as just... I've seen some people getting a little bit confused playing against this deck and not understanding what's going on until it's just far too late for them. Um, So I don't want any of our listeners to be in that position. And number two, I think this is a really interesting sort of summary of what's going on in the modern format. Um, So this mono blue slash Grixis artifact prison deck has been popping up, you know, just in various spots recently. And this is a War of Invention based deck that's almost all artifacts in the main deck, except for the Wars of Invention and maybe an Artificer's Intuition. It is an Ensnaring Bridge deck. Like, that's basically what it is doing. It's got a lot of real cheap artifacts, it plays Ensnaring Bridge, and then it plays just the other prison artifacts, and it has a ton of bullets to get main deck. Like, main deck, uh, it'll have, like, Tormod's Crypt, Grafdigger's Cage, Pithing Needle, Damping Sphere, Crucible of Worlds, and Witchbane Orb. Um, So it has the capacity to lock out almost anyone and don't forget everybody's favorite bullet to get a bottled cloister bottled cloister right and so that's kind of the defining thing (laughs) is like if you can just get out ensnaring bridge bottled cloister you can even operate with a hand while your opponent can't ever attack you right it also makes you immune to thought seize effects and stuff so bottled cloister is kind of a classic uh standard card for dealing with that sort of thing it doesn't really have a wing condition. Its wing condition is like Ipnu Rivulet plus Crucible of Worlds to mill you out over time. Oh, it's it's pretty clunky. But the locks tend to be good enough where it doesn't really matter what the deck's trying to do to win. Right, and and that's that that I think is the defining 
feature of the deck is it really is a hard lock deck mm. sort of similar to lantern where you got to a point where like you'd have to have five relevant cards in a row in order to win the in order to do anything um it doesn't use lantern it's not vulnerable to stony silence which is one of the more incredible things about this entirely artifact based deck yeah and uh it it's lock is so tight against most opponents mm-hmm. that it can just not really have right. a win condition the lock and the lock looks a little different it's kind of important to recognize kind of the fundamental differences in how this plays out versus how lantern plays out right lantern's lock is a it's kind of like a mathematical you're never gonna draw a relevant card to lock right. it's like i have this one bridge in play and i have control over your draw steps and that means that i win mm-hmm. um this deck gets a little different they don't really care about what you're drawing Instead, their lock looks more like having a bridge in play and then every turn tutoring for a, you know, a welding jar or something. Right. And it so plays that they, four welding jars. Yeah, it does play four. And that's part of the lock is right. that it's just like, okay, bridge that you have to get rid of and then every turn I'm just going to be able to put a welding jar in play. Right. Because it's effectively a copy of whatever the lock piece that's beating you is. Exactly. Yeah. So... And they're just like, you know, nobody's really running like an exile target artifact right now. <laughs> so, uh, which I think this deck would be surprisingly <laughs> weak so, to. Shatterstorm yeah. reads, destroy all artifacts, they can't be regenerated. Oh. So if you really need to beat this deck, yeah. that is the card to do it with. <laughs> fair. That's that's definitely fair. But yeah, so it's, you know, I just kind of wanted to like highlight that as kind of like one of the fundamental, just like the way that the games play out feels a little different. Mm-hmm. Against Lantern, you're eventually at a point where you just don't get to draw what you want. Yeah. But against this deck, it's just eventually they just like have their lock pieces out and you're never getting rid of them because they have a million um, welding jars. Right. And they have so much like redundancy with Academy Ruins and uh, like Crucible of Worlds. Like, you can buy anything back given enough time with this deck. But right. it is kind of slow to set up. And, you know, stuff like, you know, Jund hitting the uh, Ensnaring Bridge with Assassin's Trophy if they haven't had time to set up with with a Welding Jar, like, can easily just get over what this deck is doing and kill them before they're set up. But, and, and so, like, I don't think this deck is, like, particularly insanely powerful, but what it does is it really shows that like single card philosophy of modern where like the vast majority of decks are just going to lose to a single card staying on the battlefield that the hate cards are so important and so powerful and the decks are so focused on one thing happening yeah um if we, if i can keep your creatures from attacking me and you're a creature deck I'm i win, win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm done like that's all i need to do we, if, we found the line if if, if you know, if you're a graveyard deck and I can keep your cards from hitting the graveyard, I'm going to win. Yep. So just, you know, an interesting, I, I feel like this deck list, you can just read this deck list kind of as an indictment of the modern format as yeah. it currently stands. <laughs> yeah, people's decks are very hyper-focused on doing one thing very well. Mm-hmm. And if you can stop that one thing from happening, then, then congratulations, you got it. Yeah, so... Um, pretty interesting development in the format. Unlikely that this deck becomes like the most powerful thing going on. I don't actually know exactly what all of its matchups are like or anything like that. You know, it, it has plans for literally everything, but I don't know exactly how high the quality of those plans are against decks like, you know, Tron, Valakut, whatever. It, Tron in particular is rough, and it always kind of has been the worst matchup for Lantern Control. You just don't um, have enough pithing needles. <laughs> right? Yeah, your you know your bridges don't really matter, and you need to pithing needle everything. <laughs> so, 
like, all right, we need to hit O-Stone and Karn and just, like, all these super relevant cards. Um, speaking of exiling things, Ulamog just comes down and gets rid of whatever it wants to. It's true. Um, so. Yep. This is one of those matchups where, you know, I my list that I'm working on right now with Tron is a little, you know, I, I've cut one of the Ulamogs for an Emrakul. Emrakul doesn't do a lot against this deck. It can yeah, make you tutor up a worse a worse card. Yeah, but, right. You know, it's not like against KCI where you can either get rid of all of their resources or just kill them. Right. Or... Yeah. Um, yeah, the combo decks where resolving that card is just game over. Yeah, I'm very excited to do that to some people. <laughs> <laughs> just, even if I, even if my next couple of leagues it's just really bad, I don't think that I'm going to be able to bring myself to cut that from my main deck. It's just too fun. I mean, it's a powerful card. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's... That's just the thing I wanted to point out about Modern. So if you are playing against that deck, just you know recognize that they are trying to lock you out and that the Welding Jars are an important part of that plan. Whatever you've got going on in your deck to you know get ready for their ensnaring bridges or whatever, that's what you should be focusing on. Yep. But yeah, I think that's a good bit about Modern. Yeah, I think so too. Um, some stuff has been happening with Standard. I, I think we'll start getting really into it after next week, you know, there'll be at least a Magic Online PTQ, and I'll, I'll be playing at least one a couple of PPTQs, so yeah, that'll yeah, be pretty important. Sure. Yeah, um, I, I played a couple of leagues last night with Standard just because I had one of those moments where I saw a deck list, and I loved it so much that I just ooh. had to run it through a league. All right, which, de- <laughs> all right, which deck list? And it was from the uh, the mocks, mm-hmm. I think. It was the Edo Boros yeah like white weenie uh aggro deck this is the this had four main deck takali honor guards in it yeah no okay it had three in the sideboard okay but it was so essentially i i looked at the deck list and i saw three healers hawks and i snapped it off because <laughs> 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 this is one of the first things that i was wanting to play with at the beginning of the format was uh some sort of white weenie deck and this seemed like a relatively bigger version of that, but definitely not forgetting the fact that it fundamentally wanted to be as proactive as possible. Yep. So essentially, it's running a bunch of one drops. Uh, like 14 one drops. That's a lot right now. Yeah, 14 one drops, a ton of one drops, and then eight two drops. So for Danto, Von, uh, Danto Vanguard, uh, which is really, really good right now, especially against like Jeskai Control. Extremely strong. Um, and uh, for Knight of Grace. As the four drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it definitely goes a little bigger in the main deck. It's got four Bendelish Marshall, four History of Banalia, three Conclave Tribunal. And then the top end of the deck is the Red Splash, which is four uh, heroic reinforcements. I mean, I'm totally behind this. It's and I know you good. love I know you love some heroic reinforcements. <laughs> and last night, I, I'll tell you what I found out about that card a little more. <laughs> it's so much damage. Um, yeah, it. I 5 would the first league that I played. And 4 one the second usual. one. But yeah, right. <laughs> as usual. First league with a deck? Sounds like a 5 to me. <laughs> no. But yeah, this deck was insanely powerful, and I loved it. And okay. it, it it just seemed perfectly positioned in the metagame. The Izzet decks were too slow. Mm-hmm. All of their first three turns were, like, cantripping, and right. then they were dead. The Golgari decks were interesting. It was, like, a pretty close matchup, but in general, I think they were just much slower than what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And if we ever got online one of our Anthem effects that stuck, right, they felt really powerful. One thing that I might see, one of the angles that works really well out of this deck against those the black green decks is that you have a surprisingly high number of flyers the healer's hawks and the um sky marcher aspirants definitely get flying pretty quickly mm-hmm. 
And flying is just really good against those decks. Yep. And then, of course, the three sideboard uh, Takatli Honor Guards helps with that matchup. Right, and what's actually pretty cool about those guys is that this is a deck that almost doesn't care too much what its creatures actually are because it has a decent number of anthems in it mm-hmm. um you know between benelish marshall and heroic reinforcements like that one three is actually going to end up attacking for a, a couple of damage over yeah the oh, absolutely the for sure so um and you know meanwhile just shutting down yeah completely <laughs> completely shutting down uh, what black green wants to do in the early turns which is the most important when it comes to yep you know getting beat down by a white weenie deck is that the early turns they really need their like creatures to be impactful Mm -hmm. and if they're just not then right Right. it's great for you definitely it's much harder for them to make it to the stage of the game where they have a bunch of creatures on the board and then planeswalkers Mm -hmm. when you make their early creatures ineffective yeah you're just like making a bunch of two ones and two twos for three or four mana and you can run them over with your like fast draws and stuff right and they're really built to rely on having access to explore as a way to guarantee that they're making all of their land drops. Mm-hmm. So you can really screw with their draws. Right. I mean, like, definitely some of the lists have had the main deck took out the honor guards because mm-hmm. it's just such a trump in that yeah, matchup. Absolutely. I've never seen what I assumed to be just like the most powerful deck in standard look so bad so <laughs> after bad. <laughs> my opponent was just like I just like cast a took all the honor guard. My opponent was like, all right. Three mana, two one, go. Because right. <laughs> they had they to have right? to play it to block, <laughs> yeah. and, it's and then just... they like missed their next land drop, and I was God. like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's Brutal. how it's gonna be. And and so we did see like in this in the mocks, we saw a significant, you know, a pretty big blow to the Golgari decks, which you know have been the best deck in the format for a little while, and and really you know everybody almost people were starting to get worried about it because we saw it take up like all of a top eight and and that sort of thing but you know this is a standard where you can just adapt to that and the golgari decks got to a point where they you you know last standard the red black decks got to a point where they were pretty inbred and they were fighting against each other and like having access to phoenixes was really important but the deck was just so much better than everything else that that didn't really go anywhere we still just had 45 percent black red decks right um this though the the green black decks got inbred they started mm-hmm. fighting each other really hard with carnage tyrants and now we just haven't seen a ton of them yeah they they just now that they've got all these carnage tyrants and stuff in them they just you know lose to these takali guard decks right um yeah or they you know the they're those carnage tyrants are good against jeskai control but then the jeskai control decks adapt and they play their crackling drakes or their azor's gateway decks with with explosion or whatever and mm-hmm. there are plans here so right. standard is fun and interesting yeah absolutely for sure so yeah i'm definitely excited for uh i think the invitational is going to be when i'm prepping for that is going to be when i'm really get to get into the nitty-gritty of yeah preparing for standard so very excited about that definitely yeah and if i had to register something to tonight then i would definitely register just this guy's 75 which was very strong cool yeah and i also do want to note that it looks like we're moving to a place with these you know we've talked about Arclight phoenix a lot in modern it's also a very relevant card in standard yeah um and it looks like these builds that have a couple of enigma drakes in them are becoming mm-hmm. uh like kind of the the way to build the deck so yeah i i can definitely see that just the the speed that that card offers those decks is very very powerful and sure. it blocks knights and adanto vanguards and stuff like that very oh, yeah. early on in the game and to hopefully buy you enough time to do something 
extremely powerful. So mm-hmm. good it was card. definitely the most annoying card that I played against with this deck. It was mm-hmm. just like every once in a while in life when I had like a two four, and I was like, all right, well that's kind of a bummer. Right. My deck was so powerful that it, I could just like attack through it, and it was fine. But <laughs> right, it was kind of annoying. Much more powerful than like casting a removal spell on that turn or something like that. So yeah, yeah. But you know, God forbid, I had the curve of just like you know having a, a one or two mana conclave tribunal like the turn that right. they played their thing out would be like all right kill it hit you for four go <laughs> add to the board as well <laughs> cast these one drops yeah um all right i gotta give this deck a shot then that sounds sounds quite good <laughs> yes yeah i um i definitely recommend checking out this list by bayesta 93 from the from the mocks cool. if you're if you're interested in standard well i will give it a shot next week i guess you're right yeah whenever we get to play standard <laughs> yeah regionals this weekend i like the idea for for running back humans mm-hmm. maybe even in part because it's like a guess who's back storyline yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also i think that you know as we were talking about i think that the the very proactive decks are the decks that are popular right now in modern yep. and i think that humans is good against that so yep. and, and looking at you know if i were picking up a deck to like beat the metagame from from gp atlanta lightning bolt has just never been a worse card like, yeah, i do right. not want fatal push in my deck i do not want lightning bolt in my deck i don't want these cheap removal spells that are good against humans right so that opens up a door for humans to be good definitely for sure before we wrap things up i want to take a minute and talk about looks like we got some spoilers and some information about uh uma ultimate masters right uh, i think the last masters set that we're getting from wizards yeah so so tell us more about the essentially what this product is so here i mean here's what we know and you know this is a master set it's not making anything legal in any new format or anything like that so it doesn't affect like that side of our discussion the things we focus on the most but you know the the information that we got about it is okay so this is a master set it is you know, not speci- it's not a modern master set, so it's not specifically targeting modern in general, but it looked like the vast majority of the cards that are in it are definitely modern-focused mm-hmm. cards. They are they released a bunch of, like, promos, like full... Not promos, but, like, full art kind of masterpiece things that the art actually goes over the borders. Pretty cool-looking, unfortunately, foils, but <laughs> yeah. uh, pretty cool-looking. Like, definitely taking cues from, like, the altarist community. Like, yeah, border yeah. extensions are kind of the most popular altars mm-hmm. that you that, that people get, and so they really kind of took that and ran with it. So the design of these, what are, what turn out to be box toppers, is actually pretty cool. So every box of UMA you get, you get a random one of these. Yeah. And so it's a lot of good cards, lots of, like, Liliana's and Tarmogoyf kind of cards. Yeah. Um, so, so pretty cool. The the thing that people are talking about most about the set though is the price point of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it looks like it's three hundred and thirty five dollars for a box, um, which breaks down to fourteen dollars MSRP for each pack. Because is it is it is it going to be a twenty four? It's pack a twenty four pack box. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that breaks down to fourteen dollars for a pack. What's interesting is they're also releasing it in like three pack blisters, like that you can get at Walmart. And those are like $36 for a three pack. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a box, you're actually paying like a, a, a $45 or $50 premium for the box to get that box topper out of it, which is kind of a little bit feels bad. Yeah. I think most of them will be worth more than that likely mm-hmm. because they'll be pretty rare. Although if you get the Lava Claw Reaches as yours, that's a little bit 
disappointing. That is a dagger. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. This is this is really interesting. Like the last couple of master sets have been tough because the price point has been so high, mm-hmm. and this price point is even higher. But to counteract that, the cards in it, it looks like it's going to have just a ton of value from what we've seen. Yeah. You know, the mythics are all good. The rares look very good from what we've seen so far. It looks like, you know, the value is pretty high. So I don't actually totally know what this means. I do know it means that this is like a limited format that I'm mostly going to be missing out on. Because yeah. it's $50 to draft it pretty much. Right. I guess you can buy one of those $36 three packs yeah. as you're like buy-in or whatever for a it's draft. Still so much more. But yeah, it's that's it, a ton. Absolutely. You know, even the other Masters packs were only ever $30 yeah. per uh, per draft or yeah. whatever. Yeah, I don't know. The I guess I it feels like whoever's making these pricing decisions is just like really willing to push the boundaries on mm-hmm. what people are willing to pay for yeah. for magic product. And I I would assume that somebody, you know, who's making that decision ran the numbers and were like, yeah, at this price point we believe we're going to sell this many and 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 make a profit based on that. But you know, I think they will. I, I Yeah, I I think that they're I think people I think will buy this. In terms of you're like just looking at like their you know, the money that they're making off of this product, they're probably going to make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, you know, from like a community standpoint, it definitely feels off just because it's just like a very clear, like we're making this game more expensive uh, if you really want to enjoy these like certain things to do with it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I don't know, kind of, kind of, it, it feels a little bad taste. I don't know. It's I mean, tough. Part of their announcement article they said like you know something along the lines of this product isn't intended for everyone like it's kind of like a luxury product like they they associated it with the guilds of ravnica mythic edition sort of thing sure kind of like a premium product intended for like collectors people who want to spend a bunch of money on some like kind of fancy stuff but that also makes it kind of hard to see because like another part of master sets is also that they're they're targeted towards bringing underprinted cards back into you know circulation yeah if it's this expensive is it going to accomplish that goal i mean maybe they've put enough value you know maybe your ev for a pack is like 11 dollars or something like that and sure. so that 14 dollar price point just you know you're actually getting a better deal than buying a pack of m19 or right. something yeah, where yeah. EV, although your ev is much higher now that all those cards are standard players, so. <laughs> yeah um so yeah i mean it just you know, it, it creates a little to see that there is, like, this draftable product that's, like, $14 per booster pack. Mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe the value is there, but, boy, yeah, that it really does. And it feels a little weird. It feels like their programming with this stuff is a little inconsistent. Because the way they sold Mythic Edition was through their website only, mm-hmm. not through LGSs. Yeah. And that was a whole... Disaster. Just disaster is the only word to describe it. The website didn't work. People didn't know if their orders were going through. People <laughs> didn't get their things on time. Like, UMA got spoiled. Like, the way they chose to start spoiling it was by sending letters to everyone who ordered the the Mythic Edition with right. one of these cards in it as an apology for how badly <laughs> Mythic Edition went. And now, yeah. I, I, like, on the announcement, they said, this is supposed to be, like, a Mythic Edition that you can buy at your local game store. So it's really confusing, like, what, 
like how much are they trying to support local game stores like what is the intent of these products why would one be correct to sell through the hasbro store only and the other is correct to sell through lgs's yeah so the like the defining and marketing of these things is does not feel super consistent to me yeah we'll see I'll probably do a couple of phantom drafts and then kind of forget that the set even exists. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 for sure. And it, it'll just be another art picture that we have to remember for, yeah. for, for these cards when we're playing True. against them in tournaments. It's quite, That's, a, it's quite a Tarmogoyf. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all for, like, coming out with new arts and everything. I, I think that's definitely, like overall a good thing but like you know grumpy old me in in like my own little universe i'm always like man i have to remember all these like new pictures now (laughs) it makes it 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 real hard on like the the cedric phillips and patrick sullivan's of the world oh yeah for sure just on camera like what in god's name is that foil card yeah yeah. uh he's turning it sideways now so i guess it's a creature no (laughs) i do i do like how some of these new arts reference tournament play. Mm-hmm. So like reanimate is reanimating a grave Titan and through the breach yeah. is uh Nahiri summoning Emrakul. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it's really cool that like, Oh, the, I, I don't know. It just like feels like the things that players have done in the game, like is affecting these art decisions. And that's really neat. Right. For sure. I mean, yeah, from a pure like art standpoint, yeah. I've looked at these cards and they are phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the extended border cards are just, yeah, Wonderful. I think that the the art is really well done. I really like the idea of the extended borders and exactly what you're talking about with the whole, you know, it makes sense given like tournament play. Mm-hmm. That's that's cool. Yeah. So I'm glad that they're doing stuff like that for sure. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want us to be completely shitting on this product. Right, right. <laughs> but but yeah, we 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 definitely have our grumps about it. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know what is the correct thing to do because you have to line up, you know, they can't make a a master set and put just a ton of value in it and then sell the packs for like 450 a piece like right that that would you know cause huge upheaval their hands in the are tied market. in because of the secondary market right to some extent it just feels like 14 dollars is a bridge too far right. that's that's i think that's the main part of everybody's you know disagreement with this is that is just a very large number for sure that's about all i have to say about that yeah but that's uma Hopefully you're a little more caught up if you weren't before, um, so it's good. Yeah, and we are not finance guys. I mean, we're not experts. We can yeah. just give our personal feelings on this sort of thing. Right, right, right. Absolutely. All right, so let's get to our Patreon question of the week. This one comes from Cody Tenors. Cody asks, I've always wondered how regular players like you guys feel about watching matches and not even necessarily knowing each player's hands, but just thinking about what the right play on board would be versus being one of those players. Whenever I watch coverage or someone streaming, I generally can tell what the best plays would be and the risk levels of different lines. Sometimes playing a game myself, though, I tend to forget and overlook a lot more than I would if I were spectating. And I, I feel that. I, I definitely have watched games and, and, you know, picked out lines and stuff, and I've then, then missed things during games that I think that I, I, I might have caught, you know, while watching something. But I think I'm also tricking myself a little bit by believing that because I don't really hold myself to account for all the times when I'm watching someone stream and I think, well, make this play, and then they make a different play, 
And then I think, oh, yeah, you're right. That is a better play. And that mm-hmm. happens a lot. Yeah. And I think that given my, like, selection bias and the amount that I think that I make correct decisions, like, <laughs> I don't quite process how often that happens while watching a stream or watching watching games on camera. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wh- one of the things that I am guilty of is watching, you know, YouTube videos of Magic content and getting frustrated by the content producers like making mistakes that mm-hmm. i identify so i get because i i often find myself like you know yelling at the screen being like <laughs> no you can't do this because of that and then they get like punished later and i'm like see <laughs> um, feels good though right for sure but i and I, but so i i totally get the uh, the concept of like being able to see lines and stuff but mm-hmm. i i do really think that it's a very real psychological thing that we all have where Whatever it is, I don't know why. It it would be very interesting to find out why. But um, I do think that we are better at recognizing those things when we're not in the seat mm-hmm. ourselves. So when we're spectating, we can you know we can we can kind of get this like bigger picture sometimes. Even though maybe we only see one player's hands, yeah. So we're seeing everything that they're seeing, but we kind of like are a little more, I guess you know, emotionally detached over it from it or something. That's a big part of it, yeah. Um I don't know what the factors are, but I have definitely seen the trend of, you know, just being able to to see so much more as a spectator, for sure. I, I think the emotional detachment is part of it. Because I found myself while watching identifying lines, especially, you know, high risk, high reward lines that like if they have it you lose. If they don't have it, you know, you're in great shape. Mm-hmm. Um those I'm more likely to be like you know, watching camera and being like, I think that's probably the right play here. And then yeah. a very good player will take that line and I'll feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, I identified yeah, yeah. that line. For sure. In person, though, I don't know if I always take those. I'm, I'm in a spot where I need to take this very high risk line. I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think I, I'm willing to and I do a reasonable amount of the time, but maybe not as high a percentage of the time as I would if I were just making decisions about someone else's game that I don't have that like emotional investment in. So I wonder yeah. if that's part of it. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I could totally see that being a big part of it. And then the other thing about this, this question is, I think it kind of actually goes back a little bit to the concept of people playing kind of turn by turn and like not looking at the overall picture mm-hmm. versus like you know once you've been playing for a couple of years you can like start developing plans that like you know are enacted over the course of the whole game and yeah. and stuff like that um where when you're spectating and watching and especially if you like don't know exactly what are in the player's hands you really start to exercise your muscle of figuring out what on board the correct thing is to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, ki- like, that kind of spectating actually might have something to do with the fact that, you know, newer players are really only analyzing, like, what's on the board, but they're not, like, considering, you know, the things that they could draw or, like, the important cards out of your opponent's deck mm-hmm. or what's in their hand as much or what's in what could be in your opponent's hand. Mm-hmm. Or what your, your opponent is thinking about. Exactly. All of those things kind of get lost a little bit when your experience of magic is spectating and only looking at the board state. Mm-hmm. There's so much, there's so much, so many dimensions to how what I have in my hand is going to impact what I'm going to do on the board yeah. and how, how what my opponent has in their hand is going to impact how I make these decisions, what I'm going to play around and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was first learning how to play Magic, I watched a ton of Magic content and I totally saw, Can now looking back, I can totally see how I was so influenced by like, I really want to figure out how to make the right play on the board. Mm-hmm. And that was my primary focus for so long. 
and I think a lot of that was to do with the fact that a lot of my magic content was like watching these videos and of this magic coverage where I like didn't know what was in the player's hands, but I still wanted to figure out what to do on the board. And looking back, I recognize now that whenever there was like a really big like you know disagreement between me and the players because they had some sort of plan to do with a either how they believe the matchup plays out or things to do with what's in their hand. Mm -hmm. So definitely, I think that it's important when you're watching coverage to try to identify what you know the players are thinking about kind of in a in a larger sense of like how the game is going to play out and if you really start looking for like how that influences their decisions you can definitely learn a lot more about what's going on in their heads and stuff like that and then if you can do that through spectating you'll also be able to translate that as a skill into anticipating what your opponent has in their hand based on what they're doing if Mm. you if you can identify spots where your opponent like makes a, a play that's kind of counterintuitive to what's on the board state you can you can be like oh you know that might mean that they have something in their hand and you know and then you can try to figure that out but that's you know that's the whole thing so. right i mean that's the whole thing. <laughs> that, that's, that's the whole thing that right is. so i do kind of like that you know like topic a little bit because i i think that's it's pretty interesting this is really interesting i i and i definitely have felt exactly that like i I, I do feel like I've made mistakes in games or made plays in games that if I were just watching, I would be frustrated with with the player playing the game and I'm just sitting there like doing the bad thing. Right, yeah. Like, <laughs> like you pass the turn and it feels like, oh God, now I'm just watching myself do like what's happening right. to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Also part of it is that, you know, a certain amount of your brain is taken up by like untapping your lands and then paying mana for things and stuff like that. And, yeah, it's very real. You know, that, that does take mm-hmm. up a certain amount of mental energy. And, yeah. Yeah, when I, when I was getting ready to play Dredge, this weekend or this previous weekend so at, much in harder to play in real life than on the internet i spent i was like as soon as i got the deck i was like okay i need to figure out what my mechanics look like yeah. where's my graveyard where's my battlefield where are my lands where am i gonna put my shriek horn yep. where am i gonna put my exile cards where's my deck gonna be so that i can like conveniently mm-hmm. dredge appropriately how is how am I mechanically going to be dredging? And these were things that I was like, I knew that I really needed to figure out before the tournament started because all of my, a lot of my experience from playing dredge was just on Moto. Yeah. So you know, Moto is just so easy to just like have it all popped up and click on the things just and stretch out the <laughs> all of the triggers and... happen for you. The oh. price volumes just come back. You, you never, know, <laughs> you never just have an Archimede in your graveyard. Like, how did that get there? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. So as soon as I got the paper deck, I I was like, all right, you know, I needed to figure out like, okay, so normally my deck is at the top right corner of my play mat at like a 45 degree angle, and that's how I draw cards naturally. But this time I want my deck to be in the third quadrant of my play mat because I want to be flipping cards up and over, and uh-huh. it's got to be, you know. So a lot of things that, you know, and and I, I knew that I needed to figure all that stuff out before the tournament because I really knew that I couldn't afford to be thinking about those things yep. when it's game time. Yeah, because all of that stuff really requires a lot of mental energy that you're going to have to spend if you're not, you know, you're going to have to spend on things that you shouldn't be spending it on if you're really trying to figure out like what is happening in the game. So, sure. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. And that's one of the things that like that's one of the things that has kept me even in smaller like local tournaments from just like grabbing dredge and going to play it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't really want to like do this whole graveyard thing without figuring out exactly how I'm going to do it going in. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely, 
these mechanics things, if you can reduce your mental burden in any way before going into the tournament, mm-hmm. then that, that is definitely important. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think I have it figured out now. So if you're going to play right. Dredge, let me know. Just and give I'll, me your system. And... I'll let you know what the setup looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, all right, awesome. Well, we probably moved a little bit astray from that question there, as <laughs> yeah. per usual, but totally, totally fine stuff. Thanks so much to everybody for listening. Thanks a lot to our Patreons, to, well, to our patrons for your Patreon support. Uh, if you would like to become a patron, come hang out in the Discord. Uh, come, uh, you know, get a get a token mailed to you. You can check us out at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast or just mtggrindcast.com. We've got links to the Patreon. Also got links to Collins's coaching service if you'd like some one-on-one time with him. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast and Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a great week. Hopefully we'll see you at regionals. Let's do it. Peace.